Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. This is Chad. This week, Adrian, Dan, and I are joined by a very special guest, Katrina Gazarian with Game Day HR. We talk about so many topics around the idea of HR, their job and their role, and how they're changing the HR game. It was a fantastic conversation. She had so many really good insights to add to the conversation that we typically have here around leadership, but integrating HR, human resources into that conversation is so important and getting everybody in the organization on board for having a strong human resources department. So grateful to Katrina for coming on, taking the time to be on the podcast, have a strong conversation with us. I can't wait for you to listen. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the conversation. My name is Chad. I'm here with Dan. Adrian, we have a guest today, Katrina. I practiced it like three times. I'm out of here. Gazarian. I I got it, right? It's Gazarian. That's fine. Very temperamental. Don't mess with it. Right. I mean, not all of us have the luxury of a name like Chad Brown. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I have the name where you could just put a different person in the seat every time and they could all be a Chad Brown. (laughs) <laughs> like I learned your, I learned how to say and spell your last name way before my own. <laughs> right. I bet. <laughs> well, Katrina's here with us from game day HR, and uh, we're going to have a, uh, we're going to have a conversation about HR. We're going to, we're going to dissect it inside and out. No, we're going to, we're going to talk about what makes her unique in the HR space. And a little bit, I, even more than that, I'd love to just dive into philosophy. And I've got some questions for you about, you know, some of the mistakes that are made in HR and that you see commonly made and what makes you guys different. The, the first, my first question that I have for you is game day. Why game day? So I've, I am obsessed with basketball. I coached it. I, I played it, but I was terrible. Coaching, I was better. And then I also was an official in high school and college. And I was just so intrigued by coaching philosophies. I read all of the Phil Jackson books. I've read all of the John Wooden books. And sports uh, just played such a huge role for me in my life. And... When I first got started in HR, you know, it's not, you don't wake, you know, you don't have dreams as a child. Like I want to be in HR, right? You kind of just fall into it, which is probably why HR people are so pissed off. (laughs) But I think for me, when I got into it, I really activated my coaching skills and, you know, how do I get this team of people to perform how do I get them to buy into the philosophies of the company? And so I just strongly believe that a lot of the philosophies that you see winning sports organizations using are very similar to what makes a company culture win. And so Game Day... I mean, I had some other names, but Game Day HR was the one I could trademark. But I kind of had this idea of every day is game day. And that's really just to attack the day as if you're playing in a game and you're playing against an opponent, which isn't necessarily a competitor, but maybe just issues that you have internally with your own organization overcoming that. And so I always thought of years as seasons. And how do we like win the championship this year? And so game day was just something that I felt I could live and breathe and and bleed for. And that's and, and you don't see HR companies with that name, to be honest. So that was yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's that was my first thought. I was like, hmm, game day. Interesting. I, I love it. I'm a Phil Jackson freak. So yeah, so oh, I, no, I wanted no, to ask I you, am. Phil Jackson, what what do you glean most from Phil Jackson and his philosophies? I love him. I think he's incredible. But I, I'd love to hear from your perspective. Like what what do you draw from Phil Jackson and his practice of being a coach? So I always like to use the examples of like Dennis Rodman, which now, you know, with the Last Dance documentary, everybody's really getting an inside look at that, as well as Meta World Peace and really taking these two unpredictable. And and what I would say, no, no offense, Meta, and I, I know Meta and he's been on my podcast, but probably the worst employee ever. Right, with these two. And just him being able to get them to perform at a level. But, but being flexible and understanding which 
what they needed as an individual and realizing it wasn't what everybody else needed. It just wasn't the same and kind of giving them that freedom to make those decisions. And so, you know, Meta, he had a long career in the NBA and he didn't become a champion until he was coached by Phil Jackson. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a methodology to that in being flexible and really having a customized performance plan for each individual. So that was something I really learned from Phil Jackson, probably more indirectly. Something I learned from him directly was kind of taking each moment, right? One moment at a time and creating an environment where the mission was greater than everybody's individual ego. Yeah, and right. He had he had just done that over and over and over again. And I think that that was something I've always looked up to. And he was so mysterious, you know? I'm like, I wish I didn't have such a big mouth. I want people to think I'm mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on that. <laughs> That's great. So I, one of the... As I did some research and started looking through um, some of the language that you guys use around HR, um, because I think that's so telling, what are the points that you decide are sticking points for HR and your message to the world? And something that kept coming up was this idea of meaningful connections. And I thought that was interesting. That stuck out. That that stood out to me for an HR website firm, you know, dialogue. And and I wanted to find out from you what does that mean. It can be a it can be a loaded term for some people, and some people might say, you know, that's not really language that we use in the corporate world. I, I just want to hear from you what what does that mean. What's what is meaningful connections? Yeah, I mean, let's just unpack what you said right now and kind of your perspective of like your view of HR and what you saw on our website. I mean, HR, what does HR stand for? You know, human resources. And don't get me wrong. I'm not like some fluffy, like woo-woo kind of person either. However, I do believe that in order to serve your stakeholders, which in this case is HR, uh, for HR is employees, you have to know who they are. You know, because we're so different. I mean, one person's the next one company to the next, the demographic changes day after day. And how do you know what they want if you're not really connecting with them? And I don't know. I've I've tried to research the history of where this HR philosophy came from of like, you can't be friends with anybody, but it's complete bullshit. I mean, you should be friends with everybody. As, As an HR person, before I started the company... I felt like it was my duty to make sure each and individual person had what they needed to be successful. Even if the decision was that this was not the best place for their happiness. You know, they, they there's like a reputation I had was like the companies were hiring me just to go terminate their employees because I wasn't afraid to do it, number one. But number two, they were so happy after I terminated them. But it's really just having a human to human conversation of, you're not happy here. What do you want to do? How can I help you get there? And so the meaningful connections really is just, how do you know what they want if you don't know them? And we need to throw away this philosophy of HR can't be friends with anybody. And then they tend to isolate themselves from their stakeholders and more focus on, no, no, you need to be friends with every single person in this organization, obviously, If you're a large organization, there's more HR people. But you need to be friends with everybody. And you just have to... What It doesn't matter what level they are. From entry level to C-suite. I want to be friends. I want to know every single person. I want to know their family history. I want to know their personal lives. I want to know the things that they won't tell me, but know that that's how they feel anyway. Regardless if they're a low-performing employee or a high-performing employee, it just doesn't matter. I just feel like you need to connect with every single person in the organization in order to serve them well. And so unpacking now that we've unpacked that, isn't that crazy for you to say, feel that this is so different? Yeah, it is. It is odd. You know, it, it your, it's interesting you bring that up because it's um, you're going to work with these people... 40% of your life. So you better want to work with them. With if, if I act like I don't care for you as a friend, the trust level is going to be a much lower. So issues won't get to the surface until I think it's safe. And I very rarely think it's safe if I don't think you're trustworthy. So I, it does, uh, you know, that the book, uh, The Speed of Trust, I think that was Covey? Yeah. Yeah. Covey Jr. 
It's really true. It's really true. We're working with uh, some clients now, and trust is the issue. And the organization is, of course, behind on delivering. And so they're cranking up the tension, and people are feeling like tools that, you know, to hammer everything's a nail. And one of the things we're fighting for is this very possibility of getting to know each other. If you're not happy here, move on, but make room for somebody who is going to enjoy this work and wants to work together, right? When when I was... What I was thinking about is for us, most people think we come through the HR, like when people hire coaches, oh, did you talk to the HR person? And I usually avoid all HR people. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. And my, <laughs> you're letting on to our prejudice now. <laughs> well, the one, yeah. We're we're not, HR, but we don't like them. <laughs> when, when Adrian proposed somebody from HR beyond here, I was like, oh, okay. Boxing gloves are coming off. And I'll let you finish your point. But when, you know, when somebody like another C-suite bring talks to me and they're like super excited about what we can do, then they'll say, well, let me, you know, talk to our HR director. I'm like, we're not going to close this. No. We're not going to, I won't close this because the HR will be the, they just won't accept us. They see us as a threat, unfortunately. You are. Well, and, and rightfully so. I mean, you are. I mean, what you're doing, you're opening up a whole different way of approaching the potential of the division. Yeah. Well, know, my, my wait, joke is, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You, you first. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, there's only one HR person that comes to mind that I've worked with that was, she was the HR person at Herschel and that we did a lot of work with Herschel is because of a conversation with, with a woman named Leanne, who's phenomenal. And I told her early, I said, hold on, I like you and that's rare. Because usually, because I say most of the time, our HR people are like lawyers with a smile. So it's actually, I'd rather talk to a lawyer sometimes. At least I know what they're doing. They're going to be very, very risk avoidant, but I know what they're, they're paid to be cynical. My experience with HR is typically, not all people are like this, is that there is this level of, this level of, like, that they see their, they see their role as protective and administrative, which is far from the human resource conversation. Right. And that gal is probably going to do tremendous things throughout her career because she has that mindset. And that, and we are not a threat to HR departments in a direct way. I mean, we want to work with you. We want to work with you. We want HR to be the number one department. The HR is the very few, like it's a department that touches all the employees on a frequent basis, right? Yeah. They have interactions with them throughout the year. It's the only department that really does that. They have access to every single employee. We want to make that department the number one, the leading department in terms of strategy and performance and engagement. We don't want them to fall behind. So it's unfortunate because when HR and they're high, these are big organizations, when they are very resistant to, you know, they say things like, we don't need them. I just feel like you don't know enough about business then. You don't understand what what can happen with your revenue and your profitability if you increase engagement and you don't know how to increase it yourself. So why not? Like, isn't it better to be successful than it is to be right? I just feel like that's the that's the issue with HR professionals is that they don't they don't have a business or strategic mind. They're just very they think in a scarce mindset. I guess you could say like there's only enough for them, and that's just not the case. I would want my job to get easier. Where do you find the disconnect? Because I I have noticed a disconnect between CEOs and HR. Like they don't like I can't believe some CEOs don't have HR reporting directly into them. So. What would you, do you, is there a disconnect in there? It, it, like, I have some ideas about it. But I wonder what your thoughts are. I think that it's twofold. So I think we have a resistant leadership culture. Um, we have leadership that, you know, doesn't really embrace HR and all of HR's capabilities, not always to a fault of their own, but just historically, maybe their experience with HR makes them resistant. They see it as like a cost center, kind of because HR is made up of 70% women. It's like kind of the mom of, of the organization. And then the other part is HR. Mo- a lot of people, again, like you don't, ju- you don't have these dreams of being HR. And so they, they kind of, I think if they shifted their perception to whatever you're, pa- if you're passionate about people or there's, or, you know, if you're passionate about happiness, even as fluffy as that sounds, you can approach it in that way. And it's like, how do I make employees happy? 
Yeah. How do I how do I give them purpose? So I think we have two kind of entities going on, and and that's our goal is we want to bridge that communication. We want CEOs number one to understand how important HR is, and not to wait until you have a hundred employees to hire your first one. Number two, HR should not be reporting to a CFO. No. I mean, you're reporting to somebody who specifically. Like their their job is to care about numbers, profitability, revenue, and all of that. I mean, they're not really. Have you all met some CFOs? Like, I would not call them the most social people <laughs> you've ever met. And so, I think a CEO. I think reporting to a CEO, maybe a COO, is far more appropriate than a CFO. Right. Or or even having, if you're a big enough organization, you have your own branch, right? You have like a chief of HR who would then report to the CEO, regardless. So. I think that there's two major issues happening and we have to have those conversations. We have to make HR professionals more strategic, make decisions based off of data within their own organization, not data that they found on LinkedIn, right? But data that they found on their own, within their own people. Um, And then we need a, a leadership team that's willing to invest that time and the energy toward these initiatives. Yeah, to your point, I think, there's a confuse. I don't think it's a lot of execs see the, they look at symptoms, they don't relate them back to the cause. And I think a lot of the causes happen to be human, cultural. And then that's where the, the, I think HR could do a better job. Or I know we work with trying to connect the numbers to the symptoms, like, like uh, I mean, the symptoms to the causes. But I think a lot of times executives get caught up in the symptoms and they, they have a, and they keep repeating them. And they don't get back to the human or the the people issues that are producing the symptoms. Well, I'll give you an example. I had a client who they had like 150 people, uh, 150 employees. They had one HR manager for the entire organization that they were paying $45,000 a year. And they were just so disappointed with how, you know, with the that part, the component of HR. And I'm like, <laughs> you get what you pay for, number one. I mean, you didn't That's bring in... That's an impossible mission. Yeah, you didn't bring in a high-level HR person. You brought in, you know, I would say entry to mid-level maybe. And so all this person really knows is how to process paperwork. And so you have to invest in HR. I mean, you have to invest in your people. All the books, all of them, right? All the books about successful leaders, they all talk about the importance of people and how important it is for people to be engaged and be productive for a company's success. But yet we put, you know, all our money into marketing. And what's the point of having a great product if you don't have enough people to, you know, good people to sell it, if you don't have good people to service it, if you don't have good people to continue um, to ideate and improve it. I mean... You're not going to be around very long. You have to invest in your people. I think that... And 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 you use data, right? I always go back to using data because this isn't like, well, let's just throw some money and build, you know, a sauna. You know, if your employees don't want it, there's no point in building it, right? Um, so I'm not saying you have to throw all kinds of money at your employees, but you need to find a way to make sure that you're inclusive and that all employees from all levels feel like they're a part of this company and that they have that their work is being valued and that there's a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest complaint we hear is employees feeling like tools. Mm-hmm. When it's not good, that's usually the sound. That's usually what's coming back. Well, I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I, you know, when I was an HR manager and I would like, hey, you know, do you want to come to the conference room? I want to have a, and they thought they were getting in trouble. Yeah, right. What did I do? Why is HR only brought in when something is wrong? Why aren't we like having like normal conversations? There was, there was, I know you all have heard this like saying that you can't be liked and respected. And I really set to prove that wrong. I wanted to be liked and I wanted to be respected. And it really came down to very simple things. Listen actively to whoever is speaking to me and be like genuinely curious about your people and be real. You know, I think when I was coaching a high school girls team, I kind of came in and I was a stickler. You know, I was very like authoritative to to set like this foundation and then after a couple of weeks, you know, during breaks of practices or water breaks or whatever, I really tried, I really made sure they saw the human side of me. And 
that way they understood like I am a person, I care about them. If I'm upset, it's because of a lack of performance, not because I don't like them or I don't care about them. And that, you know, I can have fun and we can have fun together. And so I really try to bring that into organizations, you know, where I very, I had very, I would tell them stories about my weekend and, you know, I'd say shit and I'd say fuck and I'd say ass and not all together, um, but separately. And, you know, I was, I was just different. They didn't see me as an HR person. They actually probably saw me more as a CEO role than an HR person. Yeah. You mentioned um, perks in, in a roundabout way. Like, you know, I think something that we're seeing, especially in tech right now, is that these companies think that they can substitute HR or people-centric focus for ping pong tables, saunas, gyms, daycares, uh, open bars, all of that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm... Who has an open bar? <laughs> <laughs> A couple companies here in Utah that I know of. So... I'm I'm just curious. Like this is an interesting trend. I I still don't think. Sorry. Hey, there's a doggy. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I just I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on this. I, I just I just noticed even especially with programmers um, and tech companies, they're still. I don't think that any company who's offering these arbitrary perks is seeing a, a decrease in turnover, you know, employee dissatisfaction or burnout or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, a lot of those things are used as tools to keep people at the office longer. You know, that's not really the case right now. But anyway, it's just something that I've been paying attention to and that I've noticed. And I think, you know, we're doing ourselves, a lot of companies and a lot of leadership teams are doing themselves a disservice by thinking they can throw money at their people through perks and, and activities and stuff like that instead of really being people-centric. Well, look at what's going on now. I mean, the ping pong table, all of that doesn't really matter at this point because nobody's in the office. And so yeah. now you ha- you're seeing these companies really struggle to throw perks right um, at their employees in order to increase engagement. It just doesn't work. You know, you can... You- First of all, you can buy a lot of these things. You can do these things on your own. I had a, a, a company who you know planned this like huge company retreat and nobody went. <laughs> Yeah, and it was like, did you ask if this was what they wanted? Like, you have to ask them what they want. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example of like our personal life where, like, somebody. Can you imagine going to a restaurant and and the waiter just coming to you and looking at you and saying, "I know exactly what to bring you," and they bring they keep bringing you these meals that you don't like. How much easier would it be just to ask me what I want? And I don't, I feel like these organizations, they don't really take that time to find out. They don't really ask them, like, how can we, you know, increase engagement? What do you see wrong with what we're doing right now? Is it accountability? Is it communication? Is it, you know, relationships with your coworkers? Like, what is it? What are we doing wrong? And you just won't know until you ask. So let me, let me play, let me play. We have a, client we're working with and we've made these suggestions and they've been we've asked the team what they want they want to do and they want to get together and have a conversation about the difficult conversations that they haven't been having Mm -hmm. as a team and as we bring it up and we had it set twice now and both times the ceo canceled it because concerned that these things aren't the things that should be brought up with the team, although the team knows they're there. What would you say to a, a, a CEO like that? I mean, at the end of the day, I would ask him, do you want to bring resolution to these problems or not? Yeah, yeah his, it, his biggest, it, I know his biggest concern, and we, we're engaging in it now, is this will just distract them. And my point is, it's already distracting them. That's what the low productivity levels are. That's what the turnover is. It's actually connected to the lack of transparency and openness it's you know that that that, that's really quite so it's very difficult to connect those uh those dots although we're not giving up and we're very close to getting them connected So. so i think there are two ways you can approach this so number one you can call it something different right you can like put put something fun on the meeting maybe like an imagination session 
to where, you know, it kind of gets people a little more excited and they want to go, they want to be a part of it. They want to know that they can share ideas and they can get feedback. So there's, that's like the band-aid part of it. And then the second part is, I don't know if, you know, they climate or pulse surveys, but if they don't, I would suggest doing one and then tell the CEO, listen, if, you know, if employee satisfaction is below this rate, we're having this meeting. Yeah, and, yeah well, and, we've done and, that. It is low. He knows that. He, he actually has those surveys. So Okay, and then what about productivity? It's behind. It's waning bad. So you have a benchmark for it, though, right? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I mean, just you know, take their current revenue and let him know. If we increase productivity by 10%, 15%, here's what the revenue would look like. They're not revenue. They're a research company about to go. It's a high-end research company, so they haven't mm-hmm. gone to market yet. But there are plenty of there are plenty. They're on a budget. They have a runway, so we can definitely draw those corollaries to the to the runway that they have. Yeah, it's all numbers, right? If you can just yeah. put it, if you if you're working with someone, which I'm guessing because you know it's it being a research company who maybe doesn't understand like emotional intelligence very well which is fine you know some of sure. us are highly emotionally intelligent and some of us aren't we're more strategic and numbers based maybe you, you mean you have to present it in a way that he can understand it and so the, the, yeah those are the two things i would do i mean off the bat right that's, cool. that's great yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send you an invoice i was, was going to say send the invoice over here we'll take care of it <laughs> i'm just kidding Hey, Katrina, I want to ask you about the idea of safety. So I see safety come up often in your website. I've also heard you say the word safe. And I have a little bit of a contention with the word safe. I I don't know that possibly we're ever actually safe. We're, We're always vulnerable. Anything can happen at any time. And so are we setting up people to win with the ideation of, of, or the idea of safety? That's just some of my own stuff going on in in the idea of the word, but I wanted to give you a chance just to kind of talk about what do you mean when you talk about safety? Safety for what and to what purpose and to what end? And and just how do you how do you look at safety in your work? Yeah, I mean safety, I think people automatically think from a physical, you know, standpoint of safe. And although we can help with that, it's not really what where our value is. I think for us safety is, you know, employees being able to be themselves. And I always think that safety is truth. You know, like whatever the truth is, you should be safe to speak Mm -hmm. that truth and to find that truth and to be that truth. And so we aim to create this environment where it's okay to tell the truth. Now, whatever happens after that, I mean, if you confess like murder, I can't really help you with that. (laughs) Maybe I should change it, the verbiage to like safety, unless you you know it's criminal activity or something. (laughs) Um, Asterisk. Yeah, but safety for us is just the ability to make mistakes, the ability to seek the truth, the ability to be yourself and like what you like. I mean, even now in this politically like enraged environment that we've been in for the last four years, I've you know I always try to have these conversations of it's okay to talk politics at work. There's just a way to do it. You know, there's a way to have these conversations and I don't have to go and say, Hey, Adrian, who'd you vote for? Hey, Chad, who'd you vote? That's not what, that's not really having that conversation, right? That's just finding data, but having the conversation of, you know, when we were, you know, when we were in that limbo of who was going to be the president elect and, or if, if Trump was going to be reelected, we should be having these conversations of how are you feeling? Are you okay? Like, are you, what are you afraid of? If this person wins, what are what are your fears? If this person is reelected, what are your fears? And and trying to give them a sense of peace of knowing, regardless of what happens, we're going to try to do our best to make sure you feel safe. That's good. Yeah. That so sense. what? So like so, space to be able to be yourself is what you're saying. Like like right. as long as being yourself isn't hurting somebody else. Well, it has to come from a place of love, right? And I know love is like fluffy, but in the sense of if Adrian is, I'm just going to use you because I feel like picking on you. If Adrian is underperforming, right? I'm not going to go to him and say, dude, like, come on, you're fucking up. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm not going to come into a place of 
love, right? You'll be, you, you would be, you would be uh, agreeing with all my internal dialogue. So that's <laughs> <laughs> how does he know? That's what I want to know. That's, that is very disempowering language. Isn't that, is that a term coaches use? Disempowering. That is disempowering oh, language. Um, I, I don't use that, that much safe language in my work. But keep- so I would, but instead I would say, hey, what's going on? Um, and if I were his boss, I would say, hey, you know, we, we talked about having this done by this date. Why isn't it getting done? How can I help? Who can I get to help? Yeah. And then and if this is like an ongoing process, I would say, you know what, Adrian, I don't, something's not working here. Tell me, like, do you need to take a sabbatical? Do you need to take extended yeah. time off? Like just having that conversation that's where a place of love, right? That's coming from a place of love. Now, when we say people being able to be themselves and and sharing their opinions, it can't be at a, from a place of like hate, sure, right? You can't say things like, "Oh my god, look at her pants that she's wearing; they're terrible. She's too heavy to wear those." That's something I would rectify, and I would say that's not okay. That's yeah. not that's not the environment I plant that we're trying to cultivate here. So you can keep that to yourself. And if, you, and if that is who you are, right? Being judgmental and saying those things, I would recommend that they take some like, personal development courses. Yeah. Well, I, I like this. I like this conversation because I think there is a... You know, we don't use the word safe for a handful of reasons uh, or very often anyway, but I get... So we're, we're mined... The three of us on this call are like mining what you mean in a way that really connects. I think there's a lot of power in here because there's accept. I hear acceptance. I hear openness. I hear willingness to share. I hear um, like an inviting culture. Like we really want to know where people are, which is really at the core of how you operate. You know, I, you really want to know it's part of like knowing people is providing a space for them to want for them to like be honest, but also for them to want to be known. You know, so a lot of people have like life, life and then work life. And this is where I put on a shell and then put on a show and try not to get in trouble. And then I'll go home and be myself. And that's Mm -hmm. usually the recipe for despair and hatred. Like it ends up becoming, I can't be myself at work. That's the next story. Whose fault is that? People always look external for that. They never Mm -hmm. say, I wonder why I'm putting on a show. They always say this environment might be true, might not be true. It doesn't matter really. I mean, it's like what, what, I guess my point there is, I hear you saying, hey, look, we got to create an environment where people are seen and it's okay to be seen. But then that's not where it ends because it's also being seen for a purpose. You know, like, because um, no matter where, I want to know where somebody is and I want to know where I, I want to let people know where I am. But we're, if we're on a mission together, then our job is to wherever we are, no problem. That's just where we are. Now, how do we then take it to the next space? But a lot of people don't, I think to your point, a lot of people don't provide the safety to like really locate people. Like Tom's having a hard time. Susie's got a drinking problem. Francine has, you know, has issues at home or, you know, Francine's the one we have never heard of yet. Francine. That's, that's Francine. a new that's, one that's for new me. One. I usually yeah. don't use Francine as a, <laughs> God bless all the Francines <laughs> out here. <laughs> Deep in the bench. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, I mean, it's like, I heard this, um, I heard this uh, story this weekend about the Margaret Mead talked about the anthropologist and, she, and somebody asked, she's, you know, she's a writer, researcher, professor, a student asked her, when did civilization begin? And, she, and which is interesting, you, some people might say when the first, you know, when the wheel was invented, when fire was invented, when tools were invented, whatever. She said, when the first hemer, when the first femur was healed. Hmm. I thought that's interesting. Here's the reason why is because up until then, if you broke your femur, you know, which is the longest bone in your body, you die. You fall. No one takes care of you because we're all surviving Mm -hmm. and I'm out for me. All of a sudden, when the first some guy breaks his femur and people decide to come around him, pick him up, take him to a safe place and take care of him for the 15 weeks it takes to reset a femur. All of a sudden, now we have a civilization Mm -hmm. as a whole. We care. We care for the one. And that there's a little bit of a theme here around, can I be where I am? And then does the community get where we're going together? So no matter where I am, we, you can help me when I need help. But most of us don't want to be that transparent for natural fears because this openness and safety doesn't exist, doesn't exist in culture. I mean, it's like 
I mean, this year, right? I mean, I've had one that her dad was in the hospital. I had one that um, her daughter is struggling with depression, a teenage daughter. I mean, I think in other organizations, HR wouldn't know that. Yeah. Right. And for me, it's important. I want to know. It's the whole human, right? This isn't the 50% human resources department. This isn't the fractional human resources department. This is the human resources department. I want I care about the entire human, the whole human. And so I think even, you know, when we talk about safety and holding that, you know, holding that line of safety, it's really important that we're genuinely curious, right? Like, why are you saying these things? Why do you feel that way? I'll give you an example. One of like my, I would, I don't want to call it a pet peeve because it's, I've accepted it now, but it's like when a group of coworkers are wondering if another coworker is gay. And they're like, I wonder if he's gay and blah, blah, blah. And the co, then this coworker, he doesn't want to say, or he hasn't made it a point to say that to anybody. And why should he, right? I'm not going around telling everybody I'm a heterosexual. Why should he have to, you know, give this information? And so I, I kind of looked at them and I'm like, do you want to sleep with him? And they're all looking at me like, oh no. And I'm like, so then what does that matter? Why do you want to know? Do you want to put a label on him? And that's a problem in a culture that at least I'm a part of. And so I, you know, I just have this conversation with them and and I feel like having that conversation with them and, and then maybe another group and just the multiplier of that, it's just creating a more accepting culture. It's like, why do you, why do we need to have this conversation? I don't need to know as HR if what his sexual orientation is. If he wants to tell me, great. If he wants to talk about his boyfriend, fine. I'm okay with that. But I'm not going to ask him, number one, because it's illegal. I'm not allowed to ask. But number two, why why do we want to tag him with this label? Labels cause anger, right? We're so busy defending labels that we're not really having clear communication. And I think that you know, by this group of people talking about this other person's sexual orientation... They don't realize there's anything wrong with it, but I just kind of challenge people in why do you want to know? Why do you want to have this conversation? And that's the safety. I'm creating a safe environment, a safe environment for that, you know, employee to where he doesn't feel like if he doesn't want to talk about it, he doesn't have to. But if he does, he can. And that's it. Yeah. You you know, uh, when you bring this up, it reminds me of um, I think we're shaking off the the effects of the industrial revolution at this point in, in, in that we have the human being has been looked at as a cog in a wheel. And there's a sense that command and control, I tell them what to do and then they do it. And as be, people become more intelligent, more aware, more, you know, I think their emotional IQ increases. That's not enough. They won't, they won't make them, they won't be able to live in that environment. And I think there is a, especially when executives get, overwhelmed or they have low bandwidth there's the tendency to treat your people like a tool is very natural go do what i said i don't have time to talk about this right Mm -hmm. so if there is that humanity if you do have the humanity then you can actually create conversation where you can say look can't talk now need you to do this let's pick it up later there's a whole range of things that you can do within the culture and the culture becomes smarter too or more emotionally savvy then they are then they're coming up there. But if that's not in place, then you've got a bunch of little tyrants running around in silos, little fiefdoms. And that's always a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you can't put a blanket over it, right? Yeah. You can't. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be, if you're going to be a CEO who's very like high level of productivity, very little bandwidth, that's fine. You know, if you don't, if you feel like at this time of your life, you don't want to have these conversations with these, these employees, you need to have a buffer then. Yeah. You, is your HR department. Exactly. You need to make sure you have an HR department that's willing to have these conversations with these employees. And then you also have to remember you can't be like this forever. Yeah. Like at some point you're gonna have to come out of this like fog, you know, and and set that milestone early is just probably some of the work you all do where it's like set this milestone or the sprint or whatever. And then, you know, let's have like let's change our, our shift our perspective or our physiology and try something different. I think when you're starting a company, because I've been there. I for sure was like, how many hours in a day can I work? Yeah, right. You know, how many things can I get done? It was like a game to me. It was game day. It was it, it was like, how many tasks can I knock off my list? And then at some point I got tired and I was burned out and I was grumpy. 
And I felt lost and I was sad because I was not creating any connections with anybody. It was not like interacting with people with their soul. And that's something that brings me a lot of joy is entertaining people and making them laugh and connecting with them in like a short short period of time. And so I finally at, you know, hired a head of client services to take over all of, a lot of that work. And so now, you know, in the pandemic, I'm sure you all did it. How many Zoom meetings were you taking and you just realized you were so grumpy at the end of the day? Yeah. Like I couldn't even look at a screen. I couldn't even look at my phone. I couldn't even watch TV because I was so sick of looking at my computer all day long. And so finally I just set some you know, limitations where I'm only going to take meetings from this time to this time on these days. And that's it. And it was scary, right? It's kind of scary at first when you, when you make that big change. You're like, you feel like you're doing something wrong. You feel like I'm not, you're not working hard enough. But, but realizing that taking care of your mental health and, and creating an environment of creativity, a, an environment of connection, um, that goes a long way and probably even further than completing tasks that you could just delegate to somebody else. So I think that for CEOs or executives who do want to have like a heads down type of environment, that's fine. But you need to have people around you who are going to pay attention and have these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. That's one way to work around it. I mean, and I think that's really brilliant. And letting somebody have some permission to have this you know, essentially kind of teach, re- teaching, relating to themselves like a tool. And I don't mean that negatively. I'm just like, oh, I'm here to get the most out of my self, which I I want to sprint fastest on my own. That's sometimes necessary. I mean, sometimes with the founders we work with, there's seasons yeah. mm-hmm. um, that that's necessary. And if we don't, there's prices to be paid, bigger prices to be paid for not doing that. But then we're just in a conversation with the leader we're working with now. He's in that season where he's sprinting towards a thing for about a month and he's the only person only person maybe on the planet that can do it this mm-hmm. so now what so, now, <laughs> so let's say right so let's say that's that's actually the best strategy now there's a whole camp of people that if you under communicate around the purpose for that and the reason for that then they will hate you even more they, so, will, it. they will actually end up unwittingly undermining it yeah right. sabot- sabotage the mission that's right a lot of times, a lot of times for me, when I'm in these conversations with leaders around the conversations that need to happen, folks, I do this too, tend to make up. It's going to take, it's a three hour meeting mm-hmm. instead of a, a 10 minute conversation. Mo- my experience is most of these kind of set the context conversations don't have to take that long. It really can happen. And just having the 10 minute is like a million times better than avoiding it. And then, cause you're gonna have to spend some bandwidth justifying why you're avoiding it because you know you're avoiding it if you're like the owner and like you lead from an ownership place and you know you're avoiding something that is actually heavy on you and so doing yourself a favor and like having at least the five minute or the 10 minute conversation saying hey i got to go do this thing i'd like to this big conversation matters to me i know it matters to you i i'll I'll be able to have it in two weeks can we talk about it in two weeks the person is going to say yes and by the way thanks for bringing that up and hey both put it on the schedule for two weeks from now. I promise you, we'll talk about it then. But most of us would rather not and even mm-hmm. not even, ha- even have that potent conversation. But a lot of times the issue, because of the trust that happens after being seen, I don't need to talk about the thing because I actually trust the person now and we're going to be okay. For sure. I think this reminds me of an example of Shonda Rhimes, who I'm a huge fan of just from a creativity level. Um, she wrote a book and she gave an example. You know, she's obviously very driven, very successful screen, sh- you know, uh, show writer. And uh, she had, I think, two kids that she adopted. And she, she said, um, anytime her kids ask her to play with her, she does it, no matter how busy she is, because she says, um, tired of her after like seven minutes anyway. <laughs> and so being there for them in that seven minutes and what that does for them emotionally is exponentially greater than, you know, her continuing to say no to them. Yeah. And and when all it took was a seven minute investment. Um, yeah. And so I think of that when, you know, in your example of you just, it doesn't take that long. No. Um, you can actually orchestrate the conversation, right? And I mean, yeah. if, you, if you're a great communicator, you can kind of 
ask the right questions instead of um, letting them vent or however long it's taking. You can say, okay, 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 what is the result that you want from this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of our favorite questions. Yeah. But yeah, so I think uh, just having that investment or, or being able to ask the right questions and keep that conversation efficient yeah. is important. If anything, you all, what the work you all are doing could be based around could include that, right? How to have these conversations. Oh, it is a lot. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, people actually need help getting to the point. I mean, the, the, the naturally human paradigm is story driven and it's, it is naturally criminal in the sense that you know, it's going to go out to, to prove its point despite, can, be, be, despite a holistic view of evidence. Mm-hmm. Like that's the way the brain works, right? It's like, here's my point. If, if my point is I'm feeling mistreated at work, let's say that. Let's say that's my point. I'm feeling invisible at work. Great. I'm actually only going to notice the data that supports my point. And if I notice anything else, I will diminish it. Oh, that was an aberration. Sorry, that was just one fluke thing. Or delete it. He asked me how I was, but he didn't mean it. That's right. Or, you know, you know, so anyway, so people need, they, we naturally find ourselves baked, really, in stories about why I'm right about the thing. And if I'm in a context where I feel like I don't have the power um, or the authority, I actually need help breaking free of the stories about why I don't have the power. And so leaders can do a service to their people saying, hey, I want to hear you. Let's start with where you want to be at the end of this conversation. Let's start with what I'm not hearing that I need to hear from you. So hit me with it. Where do you want it to be? You know, And that's a gift to the person. It might come off unempathetic, but actually I think it's pure advocacy. Right. right. No, I mean, you could take this into everything in our life, I feel. <laughs> I just As had we, one of those this morning. <laughs> and Katrina, as we wrap this up, I wanted to ask you, the hero comment on your guys' website is changing the way the world thinks about HR. So it's an intriguing and and very big suggestion or big comment. Uh, so I, I'm, it'd be great to hear from you. Like, How do you see the world currently thinking about HR? And then how are you changing that? Yeah, I mean, I feel that I want employees to trust their HR department and I want leadership to trust the the HR department. I want there to be, you know, an open flow of communication up and down the chain of command. I want HR to understand um, strategy and business. I want them to make decisions based off of data. I want employee engagement to be increased. I want employees to be happier because if they're happy as employees, they're probably happier in their general life as well. I just really want... I would love to see more chief of HR roles rather than HR reporting to an operational executive or a financial executive. I just feel like there is a physiological effect when you hear someone mention HR and it's a negative one, right? Like maybe their butthole clenches or something. I would like for there to be a different physiological reaction to HR. I Mm. want it to be a positive one. And then how we're doing that, obviously, we service companies. Um, we can take on all of their day-to-day HR tasks or we partner with the HR department in strategizing and finding that data and completing projects and increasing employee engagement. But also another thing that we started is we really want to focus on developing HR professionals. Um, so sometimes asking a, an organization to engage with us could be a big ask. And so I think another approach that we're going to take, which I just wrapped up filming the first course, which is demystifying company culture. And it's a real focus on improving your employee engagement. We're going to release a series of courses that HR professionals can take themselves, um, which are very operational-based. So not just company culture is important, but how do you actually create that environment? And we're going to create a community. We actually already started it. It's called um, HR MVPs on Facebook to where HR professionals can really engage in a community with other HR professionals and ask questions. Maybe they have an employee situation that they don't know how to handle and they can get feedback from other HR professionals who maybe went through that situation. Maybe uh, they need a technology recommendation, a benefits recommendation, whatever that looks like, just having that community to talk to you. Because oftentimes in organizations, 
when an HR director doesn't know what to do, they don't really have anybody to go to. They can't go to the CEO for advice because CEO hired them because they don't know how to do it or they don't know what to do. Um, so oftentimes they, you know, they're either on Google trying to find out or they're talking to other HR professionals. Um, and so we're going to provide that community for those people. So that way, I think for us, it helps move that needle a little bit more by, you know, there's obviously a problem with HR. There's a problem with underdeveloped and inexperienced HR professionals. We're going to fix that. We want to aim to fix that and create better organizations, you know, worldwide. That's great. Well, we've, we've gone over the time that you've so generously allotted us and we really appreciate you being on here. This is great. There's some really good distinctions in this conversation. Um, and there's so much more to it. I mean, we could have you on few more episodes to really dig into some of the distinctions and the changes you're making in the HR world. I even think as you were thought, talking, I even thought about even just the initials HR might do it a disservice, right? Because we're dropping the human out of it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it becomes an acronym for a department that you may or may not have different kinds of feelings for. So I, that was just even something that came to me as you were talking about what what it is that you want to create for human resources and human resource professionals. So thanks so much. Where's the best place for people to hook up with you? Well, um, they can find me. I was going to be very perverted, but I'm not going to. Um, they can find our website at www.gamedayhr.com. They can search for our group um, on Facebook, HR MVPs, um, Most Valuable Players, I guess you could think of it. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, I love connecting on there. I share a lot of content through there. And that should do it. We actually have an ebook that we released on our website um, called The 50 HR Mistakes Most Businesses Make. Download it. Um, I think a lot of people will find value in it. Cool. Thank you so much, Katrina. I just when when we got to meet recently and and you were sharing your heart with it, I said, Oh, there's so much alignment. So thank you. I mean, you're you're after clarity and boldness. That's what we stand for in our the companies we work with. So thanks. We're we're excited to help our companies we work with get to know you guys over time. So thank you. I love that. No, I love what you all are doing. I mean, keep at it. We are doing the same thing. It's just probably different life cycles of the organization. Um, I appreciate the work that you all do. I think it's so valuable for organizations and for leaders to understand it. I don't think there are a lot of companies or organizations that do what you do that are great. And I think that you're probably one of the few that are actually great. And you're not just reading a book and regurgitating some of the passages that you just read in some book. And so I wish you all, I mean, tremendous success and continuing to do what you do. And I, I, I've been enjoying following the journey, even if it has been for a short time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. See you later. All right. Bye. Yeah. Sure. Well, friends of the podcast, thank you so much for joining us this week. If this podcast has helped you or entertained you at all, we encourage you to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. That'll help us reach more people and grow this community. And finally, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad at takenewground.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast. 